Northwest of Normal is a true crime podcast. The subject matter may not be suitable for all listeners and is not meant for children. Discretion is advised. Welcome to Northwest of Normal, a true crime podcast exploring stories from the Pacific Northwest. I'm Megan, and I'm flying solo today. John and I recorded this episode, but it got all fouled up in post-production, and so I'm having to redo it on my own. So we're a day late and a dollar short, and it's just me, but I have a story for you today. I'm going to be talking about Michelle Welch and Jennifer Bastian. On March 26, 1986, in the north end of Tacoma, Washington, Michelle Welch, age 12, and her younger sisters Angela and Nicole asked their mom, Barbara Leonard, if they could ride their bikes to Puget Park. They had piano lessons later that day, and their piano teacher lived across the street from the park, a couple of miles from their home. Since her husband left the family, Barbara had been raising the girls by herself. The girls were on spring break and wanted the freedom to ride off on their own. Barbara said they could go for half an hour before the lessons, but per one of the sisters, they left for the park a good two-plus hours before the lessons. When the three sisters arrived at the park, they realized that they had forgotten their lunches at home. Michelle offered to ride back to get them. After she left, Angela and Nicole, the other sisters, had to go to the bathroom, but there wasn't a restroom at the playground, so they rode away from the park to find one. It took longer than they thought it would, so they assumed Michelle would have returned with lunch by the time they got back. But when they did, they didn't see Michelle anywhere in the park. They saw her bike, which was locked, so she must have returned to the park, but she wasn't there. They looked all over and called out for her. Immediately, they knew something was very wrong. Angela and Nicole called Barbara to tell her that Michelle was missing. Their mom rushed home from work. Jean Miller, a Tacoma police officer, responded to the call. It grew dark and the police department called search and rescue, including bloodhounds. While Barbara sat in a patrol car at the park that night, an officer told her that they had found Michelle's body. Not her, but her remains. Michelle was discovered by a fire pit. She'd been sexually assaulted, had a seven-inch laceration across her throat, and her cause of death was determined to be blood force trauma to her head. She was clothed from the waist up, but her pants and underwear had been yanked down to her ankles. I'm sorry for such a graphic rendering of what someone did to Michelle, but we need to be direct about what a man can do to a human being whether a child or a woman. When we downplay the horror of it, we do a disservice to human beings who endure these atrocities and therefore perpetuate the idea that it's okay to minimize the acts of human predators. When we do this, monsters walk free and a lot of other people are forced to exert great effort to avoid being victimized when they ought to have the freedom to just live their lives. Per Keith Morrison on Dateline, a girl whom Michelle went to school with saw a man in the park that day staring at the sisters. This kind of thing makes me crazy because A, why didn't this girl tell her parents or sound the alarm? B, why didn't she approach the park and loudly say hi to the girls to let the man know that someone else was around? On the other hand, maybe this girl saw him before the three others left to go back to the house and the restroom, respectively, and she assumed that the girls had left the park of their own volition before they all returned. Regardless, the classmate gave details to police that helped them make a composite sketch of the man. People started calling in with tips. Among them was a man who had been out for a run and said he saw a man who looked like the one in the sketch but at a different park in Tacoma, Point Defiance Park. Point Defiance is 760 acres and includes a zoo, an aquarium, gardens, beaches, a boathouse, a ferry dock, and trails meandering through old-growth forest. 
It's located three or four miles from Puget Park, where Michelle was abducted and later found. So it's a little weird that this jogger noted that he purportedly saw the man at a different park. But not that weird, right? If you're a predator, you're going to keep your options open for hunting grounds. And if you're going after children, what better place to hunt than a park? Even with hundreds of tips flooding in, police had no leads. People in Tacoma were obviously terrified. Michelle's mom, Barbara, wasn't scared. She was angry. She bought a gun and kept it in her car. Barbara told Keith Morrison that she'd be driving through town and she'd pull up to a stoplight and see a man in the car next to her and wonder, did you do this to my daughter? Flash forward to August 4th, 1986, five months after Michelle's murder. Patty Bastian and her 13-year-old daughter Jenny spent the morning chatting and sunbathing on the floor in their dining room. For people not from the Pacific Northwest, it's hard to describe how glorious summer days here can be, especially if you live west of the mountains and have gloomy weather most of the year. Then the sun comes out and it's radiant and you're surrounded by lush green and shimmering water everywhere. Sounds like this was one of those buttery, lovely days specific to that region in late summer. Jenny, the 13-year-old, was super athletic, played sports, and was training for a long bike ride. Jenny had gotten a new Schwinn, and she and a friend were supposed to go for a ride together that day. But the friend canceled, so she called her dad to see if he was okay with her doing the five-mile bike ride around Point Defiance by herself. He said it was fine with him, but told her to be home by 6.30 that evening. Jenny left a note for her mom in the kitchen and took off for Point Defiance. Her older sister, Teresa, who was 15 then, happened to work at a day camp at the park and knew the area well. The five-mile loop was popular with hikers and cyclists. That night, Patty, Jenny's mom, set out for her evening shift at the store where she worked, a 40-minute drive from home. Patty's husband called her at work and told her to come home because Jenny hadn't come back from the park. Officers were already searching the park and told Patty to stay at home, likely in the event that Jenny came home. At 11 that night, a police officer knocked on the door and had search dogs with him. The cop asked Patty if she had a piece of Jenny's clothing for the dog to pick up a scent with. No one found Jenny that night. PD closed the park for three days to seal it off from the public and continue the search. Local media covered the disappearance extensively. Hundreds of people came out to search for Jenny. Jean Miller, who was the first on the scene of Michelle's vanishing, came out to help look for her too. Tips came in with people believing that they'd seen Jenny. Patty waited for Jenny at the house. Barbara Leonard, Michelle's mom, visited her. Patty said that Barbara was kind and sweet and she thanked her for coming, but after she left, Patty turned to a friend and said she didn't know why Barbara had come because, quote, Jennifer's not dead, end quote. Keith Morrison pointed out to Barbara that she symbolized a grim reality for Patty. And because Jenny still hadn't been found, Patty held out hope that her daughter could be alive. On August 28th, 24 days after Jenny went missing, a detective came to her family's home to tell Patty that they had found her. Her body lay hidden in a wooded area off a hiking path in what one investigator described as an igloo, but I picture it more like a lean-to. It was cave-like. I would think that a small shelter just off a path would warrant more attention than just underbrush, but maybe that's how she was eventually discovered. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death with her swimsuit tangled at her ankles. Her bike was found further away from her, concealed by torn-off ferns. So now, within less than five months and less than four miles apart, two girls, aged 12 and 13, both with blonde hair and blue eyes, go missing from parks in Tacoma with their bikes. And these are urban parks on a summer day in broad daylight. Both were raped and killed. Would you think that this was the same perpetrator? I would. The only thing that gives me pause are the manners of death. Michelle sustained blunt force trauma to her head, and then her throat was cut. Jenny was strangled, but the killer went for their necks. 
This symbology bothers me because he didn't just snuff out their lives. He went for their voices. He silenced them in every way imaginable. And whoever did this took no real pains to hide their bodies or conceal the crimes. They were also brazen enough to have likely committed the crimes in the parks. It's hard to tell, but if the killer took them to another location, why bring the bodies back to the parks? When Keith Morrison asked Patty what she thinks happened to Jenny that day, she said she has turned it into some macabre fairy tale in her mind, wherein her daughter simply went for a bike ride and, quote, the monster came out of the woods and grabbed her and killed her, end quote. She can't comprehend anything beyond that. These girls just wanted to go for a bike ride on a summer day. Parents in the area were understandably tripping by this time. Kids lost the freedom they'd grown accustomed to. No more solo walks down the street to a friend's house or a jaunt to the park unattended. The boogeyman was real, but no one knew his identity. Tips continued pouring in regarding both murders. A second composite sketch came out of a man in his 20s who wore mirrored sunglasses, which I picture as what I call asshole glasses, which are really just aviators. Someone called in a tip about someone matching the description of the sketch, a guy who drove a van and was familiar with point defiance and surrounding areas. But when PD followed up, it went nowhere. Investigators had collected all the evidence they could, but any time they thought they had a promising lead, it turned up empty. The cases of Michelle Welch and Jennifer Bastian grew cold. Residents of Tacoma carried an uneasy dread, knowing that a killer walked free among them. Jean Miller, the officer who was on the scene of both girls' murders, stuck with the case for 20 years. By this time, it's the mid-aughts and Miller meets a young detective named Lindsay Wade. Wade grew up in Tacoma and was 11 years old in the spring and summer of 1986. She didn't know Michelle or Jenny, but she remembered their abductions and it scared the shit out of her. It influenced her through the rest of her childhood, and she thought about it every time she rode her bike or went for a walk alone. While in high school, Lindsay Wade read a book about Ted Bundy, presumably The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. Ted Bundy also grew up in Tacoma. The story intrigued and horrified Wade and compelled her to go into law enforcement to catch the bad guys. She joined Tacoma PD, going from patrol to narcotics and sex crimes, and all the while she remembered Michelle and Jenny. She looked into who could have killed these girls two decades earlier. Jean Miller started a cold case unit motivated to find Michelle and Jenny's killer. In 2013, Lindsay Wade joined forces with him and poured over interviews and reports related to the case. There were nine or ten binders worth of documents, and Wade got an idea to compile a list of all the men named in the binders, including persons of interest, witnesses, maybe even people who had called in with tips. The list she came up with contained roughly 2,300 names. Wade assumed that whoever had killed Michelle and Jenny would have a criminal record and history of sexual violence or murder. Forward-thinking detectives had saved semen found in Michelle in 1986, but when Wade sent it in for testing, it didn't match anybody in CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System, which I know everyone knows about, but it's basically the FBI's DNA database. No semen was taken from Jenny's body, which makes me wonder if they just didn't take a swab or sample, or however they did it in the 1980s. But they still had the bathing suit she'd been wearing when she was taken, and the crime lab found semen in it, and they sent that off to CODIS. No hits. In the meantime, the cold case unit compared the semen found in Michelle's body with the semen found in Jenny's swimsuit. Not a match. Two different killers. A year after starting the cold case unit, Jean Miller retired from the department in 2014. Lindsay Wade kept on the case, and to fill the vacancy left by Miller, Jenny's mother Patty volunteered to help. She was getting ready to retire from her career and figured she should come up with something to fill her days. She didn't have access to the case files, but helped how she could. 
Lindsay Wade reached out to a forensic genealogist named Colleen Fitzpatrick and sent DNA samples to her to sort of map out a genetic family tree in the hopes of homing in on a likely suspect. This was four years before Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, was caught via similar methods of tracing a killer through familial DNA. Initially, Wade had her doubts that it was an exact science, but she didn't have anything to lose in trying it. After sending the two distinct samples into Fitzpatrick, Wade received reports, none of which matched precisely with an individual, but the reports included surnames that might connect to the killers. None of the names leapt out to Wade, but she noticed the last name Washburn. Weird. There was a Washburn on her original list, but he wasn't a person of interest. He was a witness. Do you remember the guy who was out for a jog and called in a tip that he had seen someone who looked like the sketch for Michelle's murder in Puget Park, but had seen this person at Point Defiance Park? This is confusing, so I want to cover it in more detail. Some dude with the last name Washburn had called Tacoma PD after Michelle's body was found in Puget Park and said he saw someone matching the description from the police sketch of Michelle's possible killer, but that he'd seen this person in Point Defiance Park, where Jenny would be found five months later. Making it even weirder, Colleen Fitzpatrick's genealogy report linked Washburn to Jenny's murder, not Michelle's. Detective Lindsay Wade thought this was as weird as we do, but kept it at arm's length as she continued to work what was now obviously two separate cases. In 2016, she sent the DNA from both perps to Parabon Nanolabs, where they can turn DNA samples into images of what the person with that DNA profile likely looks like, also known as phenotyping. Tacoma PD released the Parabon pictures and asked the public for help in identifying the two murderers. Solving these cases felt within reach, they got a couple of tips that led nowhere. Lindsay Wade winnowed the list of 2,300 down to a few hundred persons of interest who had rap sheets with sexual violence and decided to ask them for a DNA sample. She chose to add Washburn to this shorter list, shoe leather and knocking on doors to collect these samples from men all over the country. After this exhaustive ordeal, Wade had 160 samples, which then had to be compared to the samples from Michelle and Jenny's bathing suit. Wade sent the samples off in batches of 20. Nothing. Months rolled by. No hits. Then a year passed. Then more time. By 2018, Lindsay Wade retired from the police department. But right before she left, she sent the last of the DNA samples. She had no reason to believe that anything would come of it. Less than a month later, Lindsay Wade got a phone call from the man who replaced her on the cold case unit, and he told her that they had a match for Jennifer Bastian's killer, a man named Robert Washburn. Washburn the jogger who had called in a tip, and Wade never would have included him on a list of people to collect DNA from, but she wanted to test everyone whose name had shown up in the files. His first name wasn't even in any of the reports. When they found Robert Washburn living in Illinois and asked him for his DNA, he volunteered willingly. In the intervening years since 1986, he had moved to the Midwest and kept a low profile, working and presumably not committing any other crimes. When Tacoma investigators came back to arrest him and question him a year after they'd taken his DNA, he was a scared little bitch aren't they all? Lindsay Wade told Jenny's mom, Patty, that they finally had the monster who had killed her daughter, Jenny, 32 years before. They hugged and wept. This guy had inserted himself into Michelle's rape and killing in March 1986 by claiming he had seen a man matching a witness-based sketch in another park, a park where five months later, he would commit an equally heinous and eerily similar crime against Jenny. So now we know who killed Jenny in August 1986, but who killed Michelle the previous March? 
In 2016, Parabon had created an image based on the DNA found on Michelle, but their technology had improved between then and 2018, and so they ran it again with a new and improved picture of the offender. On June 20, 2018, just over a month after Barbara heard that Jenny's killer had been caught, she got a call from the Tacoma police chief telling her that they thought they had the man who killed Michelle. It wasn't the image that Parabon had produced, but genealogical DNA. Two brothers came up as potential suspects, and a Tacoma investigator named Steve Riopel followed one of the brothers and took a napkin he'd used and thrown away. A charade of a man named Gary Hartman. Hartman was a nurse at Western State Hospital, a psychiatric facility in Lakewood, a small community adjacent to Tacoma. Like Washburn, he was a nobody who blended in and had no criminal history. He was divorced and had two children. In January 2019, Robert Washburn was in court for Jenny Bastian's rape and murder. Everyone had worked out a plea deal. He pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and got 27 years in prison. Fuck plea deals. Fuck the quote-unquote justice system. This clown had his whole young life and then 32 years of freedom after killing Jenny. Then he got 27 years. That's just over twice the amount of time Jenny lived. What about the years Jenny never got to have? She didn't get to graduate high school, let alone go on to have the life she was entitled to. She may have lived into her 90s, but Robert Washburn made clear she never met a life partner or had children. She didn't get to have a career or develop creative interests. Jenny didn't get to go on trips and celebrate birthdays and holidays with the people she loved. Hell, Jenny didn't even get to go on the bike trip she'd been training for when this pathetic piece of human garbage took her and violated her and savagely murdered her and left her body in the park like a piece of waste. Robert Washburn is the waste. I'm a believer in God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I'm a believer in forgiveness and redemption. But I am not above calling out supreme bullshit when I see it or hear it or experience it. I'm deeply bothered by Washburn's short sentence. I'm profoundly bothered by the reality that he likely wasn't sentenced for raping a child. Likely because the statute of limitations had run out. And as a society that condones that, we are monsters. Calling back to Joseph D'Angelo, he was convicted of killing 13 people, but he couldn't be held to account for the insanely numerous rapes and burglaries he'd been proven to commit because the statute of limitations had expired. Huh. Rape and burglary viewed as equivalent, almost like women's and children's bodies are loot. Objects to plunder. Local, state, and federal courts seem to see it this way. Patty Bastion was having none of Washburn's bullshit in his telling of how he killed Jenny. Per him, he dragged Jenny into the woods by her arm and then strangled her. The end. Not true. Patty is like, and I'm paraphrasing here, let me get this straight. You get up on a beautiful summer morning and head to the park. Did you intend to kill a little girl? Or did this guy just see an opportunity? Patty just wants to know why. Not for her own sake, but in hopes of helping people stop this type of shit, be it through law enforcement, therapists, or even family members who see developing signs in one of their own. To know what can be inside another human being and what can create a person who rapes and kills a child. And she, nor you, nor I, will ever understand. We can never comprehend why some loser monster asshole robs the world of light in exchange for a moment of deplorable gratification. And I have a strong feeling that these fuckers don't even get that much out of it. If they're not complete psychopaths, they know it's wrong while they're doing it and feel sick and sad afterward before they start sweating over whether they'll get caught.
In May 2019, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee signed Jennifer and Michelle's law, which allows investigators to obtain DNA from dead sex offenders and people with a history of indecent exposure, and they're required to give their DNA to state and federal databases. The law expands law enforcement's reach to get more profiles into the system with the aim of cracking cold cases and ideally preventing perpetrators from harming more people. In March 2022, Gary Hartman, Michelle's killer, was found guilty of first-degree murder. He cried like a little bitch during sentencing. He said he was sorry. Sorry is for bumping into someone and they spill their coffee. The judge sentenced Hartman to 26 years in prison, one year less than Washburn's sentence. Again, what the fuck? No big deal. Barbara Leonard had a few words for Hartman, saying, quote, I say lock him up and throw away the key, and now he will pay the price. However, it will not bring her back, but justice will have been served. I just pray that he can find repentance and forgiveness with God, end quote. Which is very generous of Barbara Leonard. I have a tough time with this story for obvious reasons. Two beautiful girls were taken from this world, and also because there were two monsters, not one. On a lighter note, Jenny's sister, Teresa Bastian, has two children and owns a real estate firm in Texas. She wrote a memoir about Jenny's murder and advocates for more expansive DNA legislation. I'm with her. If we could get more samples into the database, we could solve so many more crimes, and I'd like to think it would help prevent monsters from roaming among us with impunity. I'll link to her website in the show notes. Though Detective Lindsay Wade retired from Tacoma PD in 2018, she's also a writer and published a book called In My DNA, My Career Investigating Your Worst Nightmares, which I'll also put in the show notes. Wade is doing the Lord's work by helping the Washington State Attorney's Officer as a senior investigator for the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, which aims to get more of that DNA into the system. The name is a little yikesy, like having a parade for cancer, but I'll forgive it because it's important work. And that's a wrap. Listeners, do you think Robert Washburn called in a tip about Michelle in hopes of covering his tracks for a crime he planned to commit in the near future? Do you think we could stand to create harsher sentencing laws for child murder and sexual violence against children in the U.S.? Let us know by emailing us at nwonpod at gmail.com. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell people about us. Let us know if there's a Pacific Northwest true crime story that you'd like us to cover. And until next time, you do you as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Thanks for listening.